someone tells you that at 18 years old you might not be able to walk again, you're kind of like, wait, that should be something that a doctor should be able to say to you. And so I kind of just kept those words with me and um, I was just very determined to walk and run and get back to playing baseball. Being an undrafted guy, you definitely have to uh, have a little chip on your shoulder and you kind of got to tell yourself that at times you don't belong even though you feel like you do. Um, you just got to tell yourself that for motivation because there's guys that were getting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and um, they're going to get their opportunities but if you get those guys out then you're getting yourself on the map. I think it would just take a couple major leaguers and also major leaguers to, to make that point that the minor league lifestyle and conditions aren't that great. My name is Tim Hyman and this is Beyond the Slash Line, a podcast where we explore the personal lives of minor league baseball players. Our guest in this episode is Beck Wheeler. The last decade has really been a roller coaster ride for Wheeler following a stellar high school career, a boating accident in the summer of 2007 quite literally cut him down in his prime. Over the next four years, he played with three different college programs and went undrafted. The Mets, though, signed him to a deal, and now he sits just one step away from the big leagues. This is Beck's story. Enjoy. This is Beyond the Slash Line. Our guest in this episode is reliever Beck Wheeler. Beck, you are joining us from Florida. You're getting a head start on spring training. How are things going? Things are going well. Um, I'm in Port St. Lucie right now for spring training, and um, it's good to get down here early. And um, right now we're just in shorts and T-shirts, and it's very a relaxed, uh, fun environment, but we still uh, get our work done. So it's a good time. Uh, I want to dip into spring training in a little bit, what what's involved with the daily rigors and, and how it all unfolds. But uh, again, with the, the way this port podcast is situated, we always like to get an idea of, of not only what you guys as players are going through currently on and off the field, but your background, your backstory. And, and for us and for every guest we've had to this point, we always uh, invite you guys to to share your your thoughts on your upbringing and, and where you came from even before maybe you started playing. So if you could do that, and you could go as long as you'd like uh, as a Southern California native, can you tell me a little bit of what life was like for a young Beck Wheeler? Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised in San Diego, California, and uh, I'm an only child. And uh, my parents were both athletic people. My dad played college basketball uh, his freshman year at Chico State University and then transferred to University of California, Santa Barbara and finished up his uh, career playing college volleyball there. And then once he was done with some college athletics, um, he and my mom were into the skiing and the mountains and just uh, just daily um, walking, hiking and mountain activities. And so my life growing up, revolved around um, baseball, football, basketball, even some soccer. Um, and obviously growing up in San Diego, we were a few miles from the beach. So every summer day was spent at the beach. Um, my parents would, when I was old enough, you know, 12, 13 years old, they'd, they'd drop me off in the summertime at the beach at 10 a.m. And, and pick me up at 5.30. And so I spent a lot of hours on the beach um, either with friends or in the water, body surfing, bodyboarding, surfing, um, always just staying active. So I kind of got that from from my parents. And then uh, from there, I went to St. Augustine High School, which is an all-boys Catholic school in San Diego, and uh, played, played football uh, my first three years in high school. Um, I was on varsity as a sophomore, which was a pretty amazing accomplishment for because our football program was so good. Um, we had a lot of Division One athletes and football players come out of there, and then obviously played baseball uh, for my four years in high school there. So that's kind of a, a high school up until the high school overview. No, oh, big. We're we're recording this uh, in February 2017. 
which means you're about 10 years removed from a near-fatal boat accident that, that happened June of 2007. Can you tell me what happened? And you can go as long or as short as you'd like and, and what the road to recovery was for you. Yeah, so um, I talked about my football career in high school, and I actually um, didn't play my senior year of high school because I didn't want to get hurt in the football season leading up to the baseball season in the spring um, to obviously open more more eyes. And um, if you get hurt during the football season in ACL or shoulder injury, then there goes the whole spring baseball season. So um, in, in July, July 9th was the date. We uh, just a normal San Diego day with a bunch of high school kids. Some of my friends, we uh, were out wakeboarding in uh, Mission Bay, which is right there near SeaWorld. And uh, it was getting getting a little dark. It was later in the evening, summer. And uh, I just jumped off the boat real quick to cool off and uh, swam around to the back of the boat and was having a hard time getting the ladder down. And I couldn't quite get it. And uh, the music was on because it's one of those wakeboard boats with the speakers up. And um, and a few minutes went by, I realized that no one could hear me to to help with the ladder. And that's when my friend that was driving turned the boat on and put it in reverse. And it uh, it came into both my legs. So I quickly pushed away as fast as I could and started swimming just in any direction other than the propeller. And uh, from there, I was transported to the hospital and um, was going to Hawaii that Friday for a graduation present with my parents. And uh, I asked the doctor if I was going to be, you know, if it was okay to go to Hawaii on Friday. It was only a few days away. And he said, I don't know if you're going to be able to walk again. So I was like, wow, it's a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit worse than, than I had pictured in my head. So I, uh, after about a, a week or so in the hospital, um, I went home and it took me about a month to be able to walk again the first few weeks of um, the hospital and being at home. It was just sitting up in bed was difficult. And I ended up having 84 staples and three stitches in both my legs. Um, it was, I was very fortunate because of the way I pushed off and started swimming. Um, the propeller didn't get one part of my legs um, too much. So it was a bunch of seven different lacerations spread over both legs. So I was, I was very fortunate that my growing up in the ocean and being a good swimmer kind of helped me get away from the from the propeller there and uh so that was just right is in july so about a month before i had to go to uh to start my freshman year at the university of pacific up in stockton california on a on a baseball scholarship and uh so that was a, a tough time in my life just realizing that from him determined to walk again and not only walk but also play baseball and play baseball at a division one caliber level what did you use as motivation during that time especially the time before you were able to walk again well it was it was mostly those doctor's words um when someone tells you that at 18 years old you might not be able to walk again you're kind of like wait that shouldn't be something that a doctor should be able to say to you. And so I kind of just kept those words with me and um, I was just very determined to walk and run and get back to playing baseball. So just day by day, I mean, nothing came easy or fast, um, but just knowing that I had potentially four years of college baseball ahead of me, that I wasn't going to just give up um, for the sake of it being too hard or giving up to, uh, you know, not be able to explore my dreams there. Beck, it's one thing to use that as a motivator. It's it's another thing to, to really doubt yourself. Was there doubt along the way that you weren't sure if, A, you would be able to play baseball again and, and B, even walk again? Um, there wasn't really any doubt about the, the walking. I think 
um, after some rehab and really took about four to six weeks to walk and use a use a walker um, with two tennis balls on the end. Um, I never really doubted myself about walking. There were thoughts of, you know, how is this going to translate to baseball because I was a shortstop at the time and they recruited me to be a shortstop and I didn't know how my legs would react um, to the side-to-side movements or running the bases or just the the whole swing and throwing in general, how it would feel on my legs. But everyone I talked to, um, family members, my parents, um, physical therapists, everyone just said, hey, you're only 18 years old. Like, your your body heals a lot faster than a 50, 60, 70-year-old person. So you're still very young. And the potential to recover from this is very high. So I just kind of kind of used that and didn't really doubt that I would I kind of had a feeling I'd be able to play baseball in some capacity. And I'm sure there are physical scars still on your leg. Are do those serve as a reminder of anything for you? Yeah, I have the scars, and you can see them um, pretty pretty good there. Um, they just remind me that uh, a lot of kind of everyone has their their own story, and this was this is my way of. Um, my story of how I became to be a minor league baseball player and the perseverance that I endured. And um, so I kind of just remind myself that everyone's got their, got their stories and um, you might think it has come easy to other people, but I'm sure they have their own stories as well as um, struggles that have led them to uh, their their career path as well. Can you take me through the next couple of years when it comes to the journey through the, the various colleges that you attended and played for and, and, and what led to each decision to go to each school? Yeah, so I went to the University of the Pacific and played throughout the fall as a shortstop and um, was really just trying to, I think the injuries just limited me to the point where I was just trying to keep up with the the other freshmen and the and the seniors, and I touched on it from being a freshman in high school at 14, playing with the seniors at 18, but being a college freshman at 18 and being hurt, trying to keep up with 21, 22-year-old college seniors um, had was difficult, and so it basically came to the point where the, the coaches talked to me and said that I was going to redshirt for that year, and um, I was completely fine with that. I, I thought I needed a medical redshirt and that it would be no problem. Um, but our team wasn't very good, and one day, um, middle of March, I get a text from the pitching coach saying I'm starting at shortstop that night against BYU. And so it totally caught me off guard that I was uh, – that I was even playing after having the conversation and having 10, 15 games go by with no game action and not being on the travel squad. And that season went by, um, and I ended up having 12 at-bats and doing doing very good for, for the limited action. Um, but I just decided for my best interest that I wanted to move on and um, – transfer from University of the Pacific, and so I settled on Orange Coast College, which is a junior college in Costa Mesa, California, and uh, at, I don't know what the rules are now, but at that time, you couldn't transfer Division One to Division One without sitting out. You had to go to a junior college um, if you didn't want to waste that year of eligibility. So I went into Orange Coast College and talked to the coach and he said, "Hey, just because you're coming from a Division One program, um, you're you're not an automatic starter. We have guys that were here last year that are going for the shortstop job, so I don't care that you had a scholarship to Division One school. This is a, a junior college program, and you gotta you gotta fight for it and earn it. And so I I earned the starting job at shortstop and played my whole sophomore year, 
and uh, we won the California Junior College State Championship, which is a pretty amazing, uh, amazing feat considering how many junior colleges and are in California and how many good players are in California. And we had a, a very good team. I think we ended up number two in the nations in the postseason rankings. And uh, with my strong year there, I got another scholarship to University of California, Santa Barbara. And uh, again, they didn't know about my accident um, until I got, I was a few months in. So it was nice to be able to not have um, coaches worried or thinking that, hey, he's not going to be able to perform. They were judging me on what they saw and how, how I responded in practice and game situations that they didn't have this injury that I had suffered in the back of my head. So after um, two years at Santa Barbara, I kind of played shortstop, third base, DH, um, some second base, and then in uh, college summer ball in the summer of 2012, I went to Wisconsin Rapids to play in the Northwoods League, and it was then that our pitching coach at Santa Barbara was looking forward to the next year and said, hey, on days that um, we might need you, would you be willing to pitch? And so I kind of was like, all right, well, I can, you know, give it a shot. And summer ball is a great time to work on um, playing new positions or trying trying positions out because teams want to win, but there's also that that time for instruction or just practice to be able to try a new position out. And so I went to Wisconsin and played every infield position and then started some pitching and came back my senior year at Santa Barbara in the fall and um, started throwing more bullpens and throwing in inner squads. And um, then when the season rolled around, I kind of was stuck in limbo between um, being a pitcher or a position player because the year before I, I had been a position player. So the head coach, I think, thought that I was more transitioning into an, into a pitcher and the pitching coach thought I was a hitter <laughs> and uh, kind of just got stuck in limbo for a little bit that I really didn't do either. And I kind of sat the bench after hitting 300 my junior year and was wondering why, you know, why wasn't I playing either as a pitcher or a position player. But I did get in um, a few games as a pitcher and, and ended up with four innings total um, under my belt and only gave up one hit, but it was a, a long home run at Oregon State um, for my only only hit I gave up in college. But it was a it was a fun time to learn a new position and try and um, you're still playing baseball, and so I think that just led me to uh, the opportunity to play professional baseball beyond. I just realized that hey, maybe this boating accident is catching up to me now and I'm not quite as quick um, as a shortstop or third baseman that I need to be. I, I might not be able to leg out a double or steal bases that shortstops and third basemen are capable of doing at, in professional baseball. So I kind of took took the pitching and um, the season ended and our last home game was on a Sunday and we were packing up kind of our jerseys and getting ready to go home for the summer. And our, our pitching coach uh, text all of us senior pitchers um, that the draft was coming up and he had a Mets scout um, from LA coming out the following day to, uh, to watch all the senior pitchers to um, watch us throw a bullpen and, kind of see what we got. None of us senior pitchers were expecting to get drafted remarkably high or anything, but it was just a, I don't know, it might have been a favor to the pitching coach that the Mets got agreed to watch watch us 
you know, six or seven guys, and I ended up wanting to go first just because I had the least pitching experience, and I figured that, hey, if he's going to remember something, he's either going to remember the first guy or the last guy that he sees. He's not really going to remember anything in between. And um, I don't really remember too much about it, but I, I feel like it was a good um, good bullpen session and um, thanked the guy for coming and didn't think I'd ever hear from him again. And then uh, a couple of days later is the MLB draft and three days came and went. And then uh, it was kind of finishing up finals and thinking about where I was going to be going with my career path. I still had a couple more quarters to finish up with school if I was going to take summer school or if I was going to, you know, go home for the summer and just come back next year. And uh, at about 7 a.m. on the day after the draft ended, the Met Scout called me up and asked if I wanted to be a free agent sign and sign for a thousand dollars and a chance to play professional baseball and I said absolutely I'm definitely willing to take it and um, they even chipped in and paid for the uh, for my final two quarters to finish up college as well as the thousand dollar signing bonus so uh, from one day thinking I was going to either be summer school or in summer mode to the next week I was on a plane to uh, Port St. Lucie and um, in rookie ball in the Gulf Coast League in in Port St. Lucie. Hypothetically, if if that meeting doesn't occur or you pitch in the middle of the pack and they don't offer you a contract, did you have another year of eligibility and did you think that you would have a chance to put yourself on the radar maybe the following season? Um, I did not have another year of eligibility because I – um, the NCAA didn't grant me the red shirt, medical red shirt from my freshman year. So I was completely done with, with college baseball. Um, I was, didn't really know too much about professional baseball as far as tryouts or, um, independent leagues. I wasn't really, um, it was so quick after the season that I didn't have time to think about, uh, my, my future in baseball. I kind of just was reluctant to agree that my career, my college career was over. I kind of, in the back of my head, thought that my baseball career would be going on and on. Um, so I was just excited that I got that that opportunity with the Mets because I don't know if I would have kept my arm in shape to throw another bullpen for any other scouts or if anybody um, even knew that I was a pitcher because I'd played so many different positions in college and uh, the Mets guy ended up telling me that he said that he saw a great arm and he didn't think they needed to draft me because nobody even knew that I was a pitcher, that I was um, listed as a position player and on everyone's boards. So um, he thought that they could get an extra edge by just signing me as a free agent and not necessarily wasting a draft pick but not not using a draft pick on me definitely the most up and down year of my baseball career even even to this date because as a junior I hit 300 and was a steady um, three hitter or five hitter for the team whether I was playing the field or DHing um, and then my senior year I you know I don't even think I cracked 50 at bats. So I think I did put a little bit more effort and concentration into the bullpen sessions, hoping that I would get into more games and be able to to shine as a pitcher. It almost feels and seems like you were playing with something to prove. And I'm wondering, did that transition into your time and currently your time as a pro ball player, whereas a non-drafted free agent, it seems like that has to that has to happen where you have to play and prove yourself almost on an appearance to appearance basis. Yeah, um speaking of non drafted free agents, T J Rivera um was the first guy that I met in Port St. Lucie when I got there in two thousand eleven. And, you know, you're walking around, you don't know who was drafted where, how much money that this person got, 
how much money they got, like who's you don't know who's a high school or who's a college player. You're kind of just in this in this world. And um, I remember talking to TJ the first you know week or so and just being like, hey, you're you didn't get drafted either. And hey, I didn't either. Like let's be you know let's where our lockers are next to each other where um, we can kind of be at this at this together. And um, it doesn't matter. They always say that you know it doesn't matter what round you're drafted in. Everybody gets a equal opportunity to prove themselves and um i think that is that is true because if i didn't get signed then i wouldn't be able to compete against the guys that were drafted in the 50 rounds um before me so i think being a non-drafted guy you and tj will probably agree that you definitely have to uh have a little chip on your shoulder and you kind of got to tell yourself that at times you don't belong even though you feel like you do um, you just got to tell yourself that for motivation because there's guys that were getting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and um, they're going to get their opportunities. But if you get those guys out, then you're getting yourself on the map. So I always just treated it that I was going to prove myself. And so to say that I'm trying to, trying to prove myself and get noticed um, because you never know what could happen. Um, there's 29 other teams out there too, and they have scouts at at games throughout the summer. So um, you're not just playing for the Mets, but you're also playing to to show off in front of in front of other scouts that happen to see you at any point in your career. And Beck, I, th- I think a lot of guys have that story where they spent the summer with you know, in a house or maybe a two bedroom apartment with four to five players, something along those lines. Have you had a situation like that where you've been in a, a rather unconventional living situation? Yeah, well, I mean, starting off in 2011 when I was first drafted, I think I counted, um, I had about nine roommates in the in the two and a half months that I was in rookie ball. Um, I was one of the older guys, and they um, guys kept getting promoted or hurt. I don't know what, I wasn't a bad roommate. I think they just, uh, I mean, I was a good roommate because they're all getting promoted, but <laughs> I lived with, it was a hotel room. I lived with Sean Gant that year. Um, I lived with, I had so many different roommates that year, but it was a hotel room, so it wasn't um, bad living situations. But just getting used to a new person every week because your roommate got promoted or, um, you know, something, they, whatever. Um, but then in 2013, we were in Savannah, and it was uh, it was Jeff Glenn, Jeff Reynolds, Stephen Matz, and myself. And it was a three-bedroom apartment, and both Jeff's, Jeff Reynolds' wife was there and Jeff Glenn's girlfriend was there. And so I was in a – we called it the Nook. It was just a little um, offshoot to the living room, kind of like an office without a, without a door or anything. And uh, I just, it was enough for a queen mattress that I just put my mattress right in there. And uh, so that was an interesting year because there were five of us in a three-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment. And uh, I was in the, in the nook. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was pretty, it was, it was fun. It was a good, good time. But uh, sometimes if, you know, you don't have that privacy if you want to, go to bed early and someone's watching TV in the living room um, that you don't have your own room so you can't shut your door. But, um, <laughs> There's no door to that, shut. I, yeah, exactly. How much do situations like that and, and the various situations that come up when you are a pro ball player that might be out of the blue, how much does that stuff force you to learn how to get acclimated to a new situation quickly? Um, well, luckily I had the college education four years of of college so i was i was working on a budget in college and um always had my parents support but i i wasn't uh, just getting unlimited funds so i i had a good idea going into pro ball about um you know how to budget money and the, the money and the checks i was receiving in pro ball were the first um first checks i, were, I was getting from working any job because um before that point it was focuses on college and focuses on on baseball so um the first two years in the gulf coast league and in uh, brooklyn the mets paid for our housing 
and I don't think we would have been able to survive um, because our paychecks were um, no more than $450 um, after taxes. So if we had to pay, for, I don't, we wouldn't have been able to, uh, we would have been in debt. And back that was for, 450 uh, every two weeks. Was that every, every uh, two for, weeks? Every yeah. Two weeks. Every two, every two weeks. Yeah. So that was, um, and a lot of guys had their, so, you know, the first or second year, they still, the guys that do get signing bonuses are able to, you know, get guacamole at Chipotle. Um, but for the guys that sign as a senior for $1,000, um, the 450 every two weeks, you're not really uh, living the high life. And Beck, when it comes to the finances, is that the cloud that always hangs over uh, a minor league baseball player as they're climbing the ladder, not only focusing on their career and their performance on the field, but also how that carries over to their personal lives when it comes to actually making some money. Yeah, I think it would. I mean, we just um, are barely getting by, and I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I know it's um, for the amount of hours that we put in, it is definitely um, under minimum wage for the amount of money that we make and the amount of um, travel and um, showing up to the field early and um, the late nights and um, we we definitely there are days where you're just uh, towards the end of the month that you're scrapping by and trying to just uh, eat eat all the food in the clubhouse because you know that you you won't be able to to eat um, another meal that night after the game that you're already paying for the clubhouse too so why not just fill up and sometimes you do have to skip the Starbucks in the morning or you have to to skip the uh, subway on the way to the field and just eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when you get to the field so it for most of the guys i think it is um money is in the back of their head but the potential to earn um great amounts of money in major league baseball is one of the reasons that i play and one of the reasons that a lot of our teammates play Um, we love playing baseball but um, we'd be lying to say if the money potential to earn um, wasn't enticing if it was minor league wages all the way up through the major leagues I don't think you would have very many um, players playing playing baseball and little leaguers saying that they want to get to the majors if they knew you're only going to be making $2,500 a month and how often has the the realization of that every two weeks paycheck forced you to think about if this is what you want to do you know, it, it really hasn't um, crossed my mind at all about, you know, I do have a college degree and I know that um, there is a job waiting for me somewhere at some time in the future. But I've I've worked retail in the off-season. This last off-season I spent as a substitute teacher in high school and elementary school. And I'm, there isn't one thing that I would rather be doing than playing playing baseball so luckily I do have the support of my parents and uh, if I ever really really got into a rough spot I know that they would they would help me out with um, money but I try not to rely on them or even ask them for for any money because I know that um, that is my career decision and so it, it never has really crossed my mind that um, I can't afford to keep playing baseball but as I get older I do realize that um, you have more more expenses and more um, just I don't know it seems like groceries get more expensive when you have to pay for them rather than living at home in high school and having your parents pay for it (laughs) Um, but yeah I've never really thought about uh, hanging it up just to go work because a lot of my friends that have been in and out of pro ball are in their careers now for two, three, four years. And they say, you know, the, the best times are in, are in baseball that they've had. And yeah, they're making very good money now, but I think they would be willing to trade places with me any day. So I don't really, uh, I don't really see an end to giving up 
just because I'm not able to afford, you know, maybe a, the lifestyle that a lot of people would like to have. Um, but I think that with some dedication and tenacity, maybe someday I'll be lucky enough to have a good career in the majors and I could, and it'll all be worth it. In fact, the list of, of sacrifices that you guys as minor league baseball players have to make to stay afloat is long. Finances being one of them. But the other is separation from family and friends. And for you in particular, with the, a girlfriend that lives in Florida, uh, my thought and question would be, you know, how long did it take you to find that right balance between, you know, maintaining your career and what you need to do to stay on the field at the highest level, while also making sure that all your relationships from your parents to your friends to your girlfriend are intact over the course of a season? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult with the, the amount of travel and the amount of games that we play during the season. Um, my parents have always tried to come out um, to spring training and then to the season wherever I was playing um, for a few days to to see me. And I never have felt like, oh, I need to get home to San Diego. Um, I've, you know, since I went to college, I don't really, um, I'm, I'm just used to being kind of on my own and not really, uh, don't really ever get homesick. It's nice to be home, but I don't um, mind leaving you know, San Diego, I know that'll, that'll be there at the end of the season. Um, and then with my parents being able to visit me throughout the year, it's, it's good to see them. But the, my girlfriend, Samantha, she would probably tell a different story that it's more difficult on the girlfriends, um, than it is on the players. Sometimes we just get so wrapped up in our travel and our games that we, we lose sight of, there's somebody back home that's not doing the traveling and not as busy, and they're also not able to visit us or be with us as much as we like. Um, luckily, she's a fifth grade teacher, and so she has the summers off um, because of her teaching schedule, and she's able to come out for weeks at a time during the season wherever wherever I am. And then this off season, um, I spent the majority of my off season in the Orlando area with her. So I think that was nice just to be able to uh, spend time outside of baseball where I wasn't rushing to, to get to the field or we weren't coming home late at night. It was just a, a normal schedule. So I think she will uh, greatly miss that once the, uh, once the season starts. Becca, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, a player's interaction with the fans, specifically the younger fans. I mean, in your, in, in their eyes, you are a pro ball player, regardless of what level you're at. Uh, I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you ever get used to people asking for autographs? I, I feel like one of those things where, you know, you go from being a high school player to a college player, then suddenly you put on a pro jersey and, and people want your autograph. They look up to you. Uh, the younger fans... I might idolize you. What is that like from a player's perspective? Oh, I mean, I think it's awesome. I love um, when when people are, when they're polite and they ask for autographs when it's not the rude, uh, hey, give me a ball or give me give me your autograph. Um, but the, the kids that are um, nice and polite and even the adults that are nice and polite, um, we, I don't know if there's any players that don't enjoy signing a baseball or card um, for fans because after all, that's, where a lot of the money from um, Major League Baseball salaries comes from is the fans in the stands. So um, it's awesome just being able to give back um, as far as autographs and, that, and just speaking with them because um, I have a couple of stories. When I was in growing up, I'd go to San Diego State baseball games a lot, and this was when um, Tony Gwynn Jr. was playing there. And I remember being in, I don't know, fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth grade and going to those games and waiting outside the locker room for those college players to come out and um, they would sign autographs and you just thought, wow, these guys are really good and you you wanted to be them and that was college baseball. And then um, so I can just imagine, I always remember myself and how much I looked up to, to players when I was that young 
Um, and I can imagine it being amplified even more now that um, putting a professional jersey on with Mets on the front of your jersey, um, it's even more than just a college athlete. You have just a higher impact on, uh, not higher impact, but just more of a more of an impact, I guess, on, on younger generations. We're recording this in February. You're down in Florida, like we said, getting ready for the mandatory workouts of spring training. And, and that's what I want to dive into. I think a lot of people um, that follow the big league team see all the photos of, of the guys strolling in and getting ready and everyone counting on the days to pitchers and catchers. Take me through, you know, once, once you have your official report day, what is involved with uh, a day at spring training and, and also what's involved with uh, the things away from spring training to just kind of break up the tedium that is this part of the off season. A normal day, get up around 6 a.m. and make it to the complex by 6.30, 6.45. They have a full cafeteria. Uh, you have breakfast there. And then uh, after breakfast, we usually have an hour or two to hang out. We'll, we'll stretch around 8.30 or 9 and uh, kind of go through two and a half, three hours on the field, um, just working on pickoffs, working on bunt defenses, first and third base defense, backing up bases, uh, and then a lot of a lot of stuff with signs as far as um, with their catchers or um, just with, with infielders, what signs you're familiar with, what signs you want to use. And uh, as pitchers, we, we usually do some – since we're a National League team, we usually do a lot of bunting in the cages, and they'll crank up the machine to 95, 96 miles an hour, and um, we just have to stand in there with with bats and practice our bunting because uh, you never know when you're going to have to get a bunt down in a critical situation. And then around 11:15, 11:30, um, we usually are, their position players are done with batting practice, and we go back in inside, kind of cool off. Um, grab some lunch, they have another hot meal, salad bar, sandwich bar for you. And then we'll um, start up games, um, usually against the Marlins or Cardinals or Nationals, whatever teams are close by to us. Um, and then we'll play a play a game. Usually it's nine innings, and sometimes they go uh, 14, 15 innings because of the amount of pitchers that each organization has to get in to the game and get a look at. So they could end around, you know, any time from uh, 3.30 to if you have to go on a bus trip to a farther place, you might not get back to the complex till 6 or 7 o'clock at night. So it makes for some days can be 12, 13 hours long. Beck, how do you make it work financially during spring training? A lot of us have worked off-season jobs, so I try and have a little bit of money saved up. Um, the Mets provide three, sometimes four meals, depending on your travel schedule, per day at the complex. So there will always be breakfast, um, a lunch, and then sometimes there's even um, a, a post, post-inter-squad or post-scrimmage meal at the field at 4, 4.30, and then there's also a dinner at the, uh, at the team hotel. And so they like to say that we're covered on on that um, as far as the food, but it's not always uh, the best quality. It's not like we're we don't have the personal chefs that the that the major league uh, team has. So it really just relies on uh, what you you know what you can come up with or what you've saved um, in 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 the past or uh, what just what you can afford to do as far as. Uh, where you're eating for uh, for dinner, and most of the time, uh, since I live in a in a house down here and we rent it with a few other teammates, I like having the kitchen um, instead of living in the team hotel. Uh, having a kitchen at the house, I can go to the the store and and buy um, healthier um, ingredients and and I cook up my own my own dinners at least. With your commitments and the duties to spring training, and that goes, in your case, from now until when the season starts, when the paychecks start coming in, is this the tightest time of the season when you're prevented from actually maintaining a part-time gig, which you would have in the off-season, and 
your duties with the the ball club sometimes span 12 to to 14 hours is this the most difficult time of year yeah these two months um february and march and actually it's i know it's two weeks i mean two months and two weeks because you don't get your first pitch about two weeks into the season um just because the season starts you haven't done anything during a paycheck yet so it's two and a half months of you're not able to work an outside job because you are spending so much time at the field so this is definitely um we don't get paid during this time and that's a common misconception that fans or just the general public thinks that oh it's um it's baseball season they're in spring training they must just be getting paid the same amount as they do during the season and that's uh that's not true there's no per diem um during spring training so this is it's a, it can be very difficult as far as managing um your expenses and my budgeting skills are pretty good but my uh my my march and april credit card expenses <laughs> are always a lot higher than the other months because uh you don't you aren't making that that money and having the cash on hand to pay for groceries or gas um but in the organization's eyes they they see that they're providing housing and providing four meals a day so that's um ample and they they don't give anything outside i've I've heard of some teams um I don't know what organizations but they pay minor leaguers uh per diem um they might not get four meals so they'll give them like 20 bucks a day but the Mets don't do that with with that at least you could go and um spend ten dollars at Chipotle and pocket ten dollars and you might get sick at Chipotle but at least you're you're making ten dollars a day <laughs> if you do it or got um a lot of the Latin players will go to the to the store and buy rice and beans and chicken in bulk and um, that's not too expensive, so that's a way for them in their eyes that they're saving money because they're buying um, all that in bulk. But, yeah, it's definitely a tough tough time of year as far as uh, you want to go out to eat for dinner and you can you can only cook or go to Chipotle so much, but uh, sometimes it can be difficult. Now, is it challenging not to get bitter about that where you are committing so much of your time to this endeavor, not just professional baseball, but spring training, which becomes mandatory come the first week of March. Is that a challenge not to become bitter with the whole situation when the money's not coming in? Yeah, I think uh, I try and keep a positive attitude about it. And the way I think about it is like this before I got here, and it'll probably be this way after I got here unless something is done about the wages during spring training. So I figure that um, the guys that are making a lot of money in the big leagues, you know, um, they they went through this as well. And uh, so I kind of, I don't see it as a rite of passage, but I just see it as it's what's always happened. So it must be, you know, what what goes on. I, uh, I haven't really thought about it too much, but it is, um, it would be nice to be earning a paycheck. It might not be the same amount as it is during the season, but something just to uh, to help with groceries and gas would definitely be nice. But I try and try and stay positive and um, not let it bring me down because you know sometimes different factors such as that could could lead to uh, lower performance on the field. So um, I try and try and not worry about it and hope that one day it'll just uh, take care of itself and it won't won't matter. That I didn't get paid for for two months. Now I've got one question that I like to ask, or at least try to, every guest on the podcast, and I, you can take your time to think about it. It's okay to have silence. We'll just edit that out anyway. But the question is, what would you compare minor league baseball to? And I'll give you an example or a couple of examples. Jace Boyd compared it to a zoo, where basically. The players are the animals, and everyone gets to observe and and take photos and hurl insults or encouragement. Uh, Kyle Johnson called it a ladder that gets smaller as you go higher. So you can take all the time you want to think about it, but is there something that you can compare uh, the process of 
going through minor league baseball too? Um, I always tell people that it's like a school system, that there's different levels um, and different ages that you kind of move up. Hopefully, you move up every single year. And, you know, once you graduate um, first grade, you go to second grade. Once you have mastered rookie ball, then you might go to short season. And then from short season, you might go to A ball. So I like to compare it um, to to a school system growing up because not very many people understand that there are seven minor league teams in the United States and then another two in the Dominican Republic. So that puts um, nine minor league levels of baseball in uh, in the United in the Mets organization. So when people think it's just all oh triple A and then you're the next year you're in the majors, I I like to use a school system analogy that you don't go from kindergarten to a senior in high school that you kinda have to some guys do skip a grade or skip a level but you have to work your way up and you aren't gonna move up unless you graduate and master the level that you're at the previous previous year. As far as the pay, I don't think you can compare it to any job and uh, because it is below minimum wage. But I, I think uh, if you use a school analogy, it kind of, just like in baseball, you in school, the, the smarter kids um, and more dedicated kids are the ones getting good grades in, in high school and the ones getting maybe academic scholarships in college and um, getting better paying jobs after college. So I think uh, it's the same with baseball that you're, you're moving up and you're competing against so many different people, but it, um, the level for air becomes smaller and smaller every, every grade you pass or every level that you move up. And if you could change one aspect of, of the life of a minor league baseball player, what would that be? I'm not going to say the pay because pay is the, the obvious um, answer here, but I'm going to go with the uh, the quality of of I'm going to combine it the quality of food that we were provided and the hotel um, sleeping arrangements when we're on the road. Um, obviously, everybody, well, a lot of people have heard about the pay and how it's um, not very um, substantial in minor league baseball, but. For me, I'm going to go with the food and the hotels that if we, um, some teams such as the Dodgers are moving more towards organic um, meals and healthier meals, um, I think that would be, that's very important because this is our our life and our health is uh, important. So the healthier they feed us, the better output they're going to get on the field and then the more major leaguers that they're going to be able to produce because guys will be healthier, be stronger, be faster. And then also the, I would definitely change the travel um, road trips in season hotels. Um, There's been dozens and dozens of hotels that I wouldn't wish my worst enemy to, to sleep in for a night. That is the norm in, in minor league baseball. And it's not really, really until Double A that um, is a pretty. You know that you're going to get a, a decent um, hotel room um, before Double A. It's definitely hit or miss, and um, you sometimes you dread going back to cities because you know how bad the hotels are, and it feels like the the building is going to collapse on you at any given second or just the uh just the area also another thing to touch on the hotel is the area because you don't have a car because you have flown to a city or taken the bus um you don't have a rental car with you so having a, a nice hotel with restaurant options around is a big thing because we've stayed in a lot of nice hotels or nice for minor league standards but there's not a restaurant or anything even the gas station in sight for two miles. So that um, that would be another thing I'd change is just food options around a nicer hotel. Beck, when it comes to the concerns about food and the food quality, has that been something you can bring up to the Mets organization or people in the organization? Yeah, I think uh, it, 
it definitely has been brought up and it has definitely improved um, just in my years since I've been here in 2011. Um, I have seen a greater emphasis on health and uh, better quality foods. Um, but again, money comes into the factor. So when you're playing opposing teams, the visiting clubhouse managers um, are on a strict budget and we pay anywhere from $5 a day at the lower levels to $15 a day. Um, those at the upper levels, those clubhouse managers are on a budget and they can't afford to, they're not going to dig into their pockets to get um, healthier food options. They're going to buy um, cheaper meals in bulk such as, um, I don't know, pizza or big platters of lasagna or pasta that a lot of players might not want um, a big stomach full of carbs at 11 o'clock after a long, long game. So I think if the players were paid more money than the, than the clubhouse um, managers and assistants would, would have a greater, they could charge more and have a greater budget to work with to get better food but as far as our home clubhouses um, we are able to kind of give our likes and dislikes um, to the to the clubhouse managers of our home teams and they kind of do what they can but again they have to keep um, not just the 25 players happy they also have to keep the, the coaches happy and the the rest of the staff the trainers the strength coaches and so it's a lot to please um, 40 or 45 people night in and night out when um, you're on a on a strict budget. So I think it definitely has gotten better, and I just hope that it um, just gets better quality food and and healthier options uh, in from from here on out. Beck, one of the themes I'm getting a feel for when it comes to the minor league life and dealing with adverse conditions, whether it's five people crammed into a two-bedroom house or a bad hotel for the road team or sub-quality food, is that whenever these things are brought up, it's always met with, well, that's the way it's always been. People that came before you did this, and now you will have to deal with this. Does that get old after a while? Um. It it does get old and you kind of look at it as far as um, that you just want, you would just hope that one of those players, I mean, it just takes one or two of those players that are making, um, you know, like a Miguel Cabrera or a Mike Trout or a Clayton Kershaw um, that are making $25, $30 million a year to say, Hey, like, listen, I know it was bad when I was there, but um, players aren't. I wasn't performing at my best, and I perform better now that I'm in eating better quality, better meals in the major leagues. My body feels better. I think it would just take a couple, um, you know, major leaguers and all-star major leaguers to to make that point that the minor league lifestyle and conditions aren't that great, but I think a lot of times what happens is they get there and they um, just get caught up. They don't remember. It's it's easy to forget what you went through. I think they just forget about their minor league life, that they have made it to the majors and they're, they're very good players in the major league, so I think they try and get the minor league um, life three, four, five years, whatever they spent, um, kind of erase it from the back of their brain. Um, but I would just maybe hope that that would that would help by having a a big name um, superstar advocate for for better better living conditions or better um, food quality, and it would only. Beck, should you see yourself as an established big leaguer? Can you envision you being that person? I think so. I think the one thing that hurts um, minor league baseball is that there is no. Um, players union that the major league players have. So the major league guys are, are 
able to negotiate with um, Major League Baseball using the Players Union. And right now in Minor League Baseball, it's a bunch of um, guys that are just kind of trying to find their way through the minor league. So there, since there is no union, there's no one to uh, to speak up for for us. Um, I would definitely, if I was making, um, if I was in the major leagues and making any kind of money, I'd definitely try and um, help out the uh, minor league um, conditions in any way um, that I could, just by talking to making the uh, the teams more aware of it because. So many of the decisions that are made, I don't think the people making the decisions aren't living in the conditions that they they choose um, to pay for. Beck, I'll leave you with the final word here. And the whole the whole point of this podcast is to to give listeners just a better idea of of what you guys go through. the The door is open for you to just what what do you think people should know about the minor league life that they they might not know about. First and foremost, it's a lot of fun. As much um, talk as there is over bad food and bad hotels and low wages, playing minor league baseball is a lot of fun. And it might not be fun night in and night out for 142 games, but there are some very fun um, nights throughout the season, Um, home games, road games, just traveling with you become a family with your teammates. And um, college is one thing you play a, a 56 game season, and you might live with a couple players, but you just uh, you're not around your teammates as much as you are in pro ball. So, just uh, it's a lot of fun being surrounded by 25 to 30 people um, for five and a half, six months straight, and uh, going out and just competing every single night in different cities and. Um, making it a challenge that you might have gotten in on a bus at um, 7 or 8 a.m. and you got to play play a game that night. And it's fun to look back and laugh on it. That, hey, we put up six runs in the first inning after getting two hours of sleep last night. Most importantly, it's it's all about having fun and it's fun to, fun to tell stories and be a part of um, a team and just be with a bunch of guys that have the, the same goal and aspirations that you do. I really think that uh, there isn't another job right now that I'd rather have besides maybe being a major league baseball player, but the minor league um, lifestyle and uh, just being able to play baseball for a paycheck is is a lot of fun. Beck, if, if people are just discovering you or maybe for the Mets fans that are huge fans of you that have followed along from the beginning how can they follow along to you and your journey? What, what would you invite them to do? Well, I would say the easiest way is probably just Twitter. It's at Beck underscore Wheeler. And then there's an extra a Wheeler is spelled with two R's um, because the Beck underscore Wheeler was already taken. I don't know who <laughs> has that name. So what about without the underscore? Uh, that was taken as well. So I was getting getting creative. And this was back in 2011 when when Twitter was just getting on the scene too. Um, but yeah, I mean, Twitter or come to a game, you know, wherever, uh, wherever the Mets minor league teams are playing for, just, um, encourage you to come out, you know, 10, 15 minutes before the game starts and get to know, um, the players and most players, including myself are more than happy to, uh, have conversations with, with fans, um, before, and after games, after games is a little bit harder, but yeah, just come on out to uh, to any any Mets minor league affiliates and and catch a game, and that's that's really one way to get to know players because there is that open openness of um, a smaller atmosphere with less security. It's not a sixty thousand um, seat stadium. They're you know, there might be anywhere from five people to 15,000. So you you have a better chance to interact with, with players. So definitely uh, come on out to, to minor league games and make it a part of your summer. Well, Beck, you've, you've been very open. I appreciate that. The listeners appreciate that. And I think you've provided some great insight to, to what is involved with the minor league life and I think you've picked up a lot of fans in the process here, and 
we, and I'll speak on behalf of them, wish you all the luck in spring training and, and wherever 2017 leads you. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, go Mets. Our gratitude goes to Beck Wheeler for taking the time to share his story. Beyond the Slash Line is produced and hosted by me, Tim Hyman. Our graphics were created by the very talented Mike Pasadisi. Music for this podcast comes from Ben Sound. If you're looking for royalty-free music, visit bensound.com. He has a full collection to pick from. Follow me on Twitter at Tim Hyman and follow the podcast on Twitter at Beyond the SL. Head over to the iTunes store and subscribe to Beyond the Slash Line to get new episodes as soon as they're available. Or you can stop by my website, timhyman.com, to find the entire series. This has been Beyond the Slash Line. Thanks for listening.